Okay. Um, last week uh, we had the the people from that went on the Arkansas trip share some things uh, that they were seeing at the conference in Leslie, Arkansas, and uh, and the week before that though I was I was sharing out of uh, Ephesians four, and I'm going to pick up with that today. So you can turn there if you want if you have your Bible. We're gonna we're gonna pick up in. Um, Ephesians 4, 10 through 12. I said some things about Ephesians 4 last week, which I'll review here for a minute, and then, uh, then we'll move on. Uh, we were talking last, last time I shared about what it meant for Christ to fill all things. Um, more specifically, we were... We were talking for most of the time about what it means for Christ to fill us in all ways, to fill all of us, and uh, and that is that's language that we are familiar with and that we talk about a lot here. We talk about Christ being formed in us, but the danger with familiar language—I mean, well, familiar language in itself is dangerous because whenever. Um, Language becomes familiar, familiar. Oftentimes, we can um, confuse familiarity with understanding. Confuse familiarity with truth working in our soul. And uh, and and so it's always really, really a smart thing to do to um, always bring everything before the Lord to be destroyed in His light. Or reformed in his light. You're never going to lose anything that way, except for your imaginations. You're never going to lose the truth. You're only going to lose what you've added to the truth that doesn't belong. So, anyway, Christ formed in us, Christ filling us. Oftentimes, I think that uh, that becomes words that we don't really know how that works or what that entails. So, just to kind of review a little bit from uh, two weeks ago. The experience of Christ filling your soul is not a process of getting more and more of Jesus. That, that really doesn't make any sense. You never get more of Jesus once you're born again. You have as much of Christ in you now as you will ever have. And so the experience of, of Christ filling your soul is the experience of Christ occupying and reigning in your soul according to truth. It's the increase of his conquered territory, you could say. The territory where he has conformed you to his death and where therefore he enjoys liberty to reign in resurrection life. So Christ fills your soul as the nature, as the life of that first man is obedient to death. The death that Christ has died and the the nature and life of the new man fills and occupies and dwells in your heart through faith. Dwells in your heart through faith. And faith, as we have said so many times, is the literal mind of the Lord 
It is God's vision, God's view, God's light, the Spirit of God's understanding. It is that operating in your soul. And so when Paul prays in Ephesians 3.16, and we covered this several months ago when we were in Ephesians 3.16, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's praying this for the church. He's praying this for believers, ones in whom Christ already dwells. He understands that, but he also understands that though he is in them by new birth, he dwells there. That is, he occupies. That is, he reigns, fills them, occupies their soul, has liberty in their soul according to faith. Faith in, in, the, uh, in the type and shadow, <clears throat> faith is how King David increased the borders, the boundaries of Israel in the Old Covenant. And faith is how Christ, the King, increases the borders of Israel in your soul. How He fills you. It's so important to understand that. Here's a real quick side note about Israel. I mentioned this. I may have mentioned this this morning. Either talking to someone or in the class. I don't honestly remember. But uh, it's about Israel. See, Israel is that picture of the glory, the glorification of God in, in, that, in, that, uh, in that land. See, you know, you, you say to somebody, what is Israel? And, 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 you know, someone says, it's a bunch of Jewish people. Wrong. Wrong answer. Someone else says, no, it's a land in the Middle East. No, it's definitely not. Someone else says, it's the church. No, that's not right either. Israel is the Son of God glorified in a people. Israel is the Son of God glorified in a people. Israel has always been the Son of God glorified in and through a people. God himself said, before there ever was a people in whom God was seeking to glorify himself, God said, Israel is my son. Even my firstborn. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that from God's point of view, Israel was never primarily a people. Israel was never primarily a land. Israel was primarily a son who was glorified through a people and in a land. Israel was the son of God that was glorified through that covenant, through that relationship, through that priesthood, through that kingdom, through all those feasts, through all those laws, through everything that God commanded them to walk in, those people were the glorification of the one who dwelt in their midst. And that's why in the prophets you'll hear uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah saying things like, Israel, you are my glory. Or Jeremiah says, Israel, you, are, you were the first fruits of my increase. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, Israel has always been, in the mind of God, the glory of his Son. Where Israel ceased functioning as the increase and glory of that son, God ceased relating to Israel in that covenant and had them destroyed. 
So the descendants of Abraham were the chosen vessel to bear in themselves that increase. They were the chosen vessel to bear in themselves that glory. But if you take the Son of God out from the center of the descendants of Abraham, then you no longer have Israel. Because Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn. Now, as always, what the prophets warn the, the Jews about, if, if, you, if you look through the, the prophetic writings, and that was what Jesus, Jesus' contention with the Jews of his day. Sure, they were sons of Abraham, but they had long ceased to operate as Israel. Let me just throw something in there that might stir up a little hornet's nest, but I'll just say it, and then maybe I'll decide later to cut it out of the CD. But the Israel spoken of in the prophets is always the Israel of God's perspective. The Israel that God fights for, the Israel that God frees, the Israel that God glorifies, the Israel that God re, re, uh, uh, saves in the remnant. It's never about bloodlines. It's, it's about the Son glorified in the people. You'll never understand the prophets until you understand what Israel is. That was safe enough. I'll keep that in there. Uh, you can connect the dots. But the reason that God had a contention with Israel so much of the time and Jesus with the people uh, of his day is because Israel ceased to be the body in whom the Son was glorified. So, in the, in the Old Covenant, before the, the Son was given as the very life, the literal life of His body, that glory was seen through the multitudes of types and shadows that operated in that Old Covenant. We had a good time this morning in the in the class talking about just some of those many, many, many types and shadows. That glory was seen in the parting of the Red Sea and water coming out of a rock and fire and a cloud hovering about, above the uh, tabernacle and mountains shaking and burning. That glory was natural pictures that spoke of spiritual realities. The Jews were the corporate body that bore the glory of the sun. You know that you know that from the mouth of God himself. They were the corporate vessel in the midst of whom God dwelt. Well, Israel is no different. I'm bringing this back into our verse today, which I haven't even read yet, but Israel is no different today. Israel is no different in the new covenant in terms of definition. Israel is still the son of God glorified in a people. The difference is entirely in how everything of the Old Testament glory, which was the natural types and shadows and events and places and things, has become the new covenant glory where the life of God actually resides in and conquers and overtakes and conforms the body, the people, the Israel in whom he dwells. And the reason I took that kind of rabbit trail about Israel is because Israel is the Son of God being glorified in your very soul. And all the pictures of that glory in the old have become the literal experience of that glory in the new as Christ expands the boundaries of Israel in you. 
as Christ takes cities in you and conforms them to, first of all, conforms them to his death. You don't see David running around to these Philistine and Canaanite cities trying to convert them all to Jews. He brings death to what was formerly there so that life and glory can reign in its place. Well, in the type and shadow, the land of Israel was given to Abraham in its fullness before it was really possessed by faith. If you can understand what I mean by that. It was the whole thing was given. It's all yours, Abraham. As far as you can see, it's yours. But in order for it to be fully possessed, it had to be taken by faith. And only when the land was possessed by the king could there ever really be the glorifying of that king in the land. As long as Goliath and his uncircumcised friends were reigning and ruling in that land, though it belonged to Israel, God was not glorified in Israel. A king was not glorified in Israel. But when the land was taken and conquered by faith, then Israel bore the glory of the Son of God. Well, the reason I'm saying this again is that there could not be a more clear and helpful picture of how this actually works in you. I said this morning in the, in the group that a picture is worth a thousand words, but a living analogy, a living picture, is worth a million words. This is God, this is better than like a puppet show. I mean, God allowed people to, to, uh, to walk out and live out this testimony so that you and I, these things, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all of these things were given to us for examples upon whom the end of that age has come. Now we live in the age where all of that has become spirit and truth. Not this mountain, not that city, not this thing, not that thing, but spirit and truth. And so to understand, to have the, the, the substance which is Christ explained and confirmed in us, we look to, the, you look to the type and shadow which brings us back to what God saw from the beginning. And what God saw from the beginning was the fullness of His Son Expanding his boundaries in you. Glorified in his saints. The kingdom of God is not coming with outward signs to be observed. The kingdom of God is within you. So the fullness of Christ is given to you upon new birth. Just as the fullness of that land was given to Abraham. And yet the glorification of Christ in you has to do with expanding the boundaries of Israel. It has to do with you bearing in yourself the death of Goliath and the increase of David. It has to do with Christ having liberty to dwell in you by faith. Ephesians 3.16 And the end that that all goes toward, that all points toward is Zion. Zion, which is, I'm not going to go off on that, but Zion is the perfection of beauty. Zion is the high thought of God. Zion is, is the city of the great king. Out of out of which uh, beauty shines forth, glory shines forth, all the pictures of Zion in the scriptures. Zion's not a place that you go to when you die. Hebrews tells us without question that we have now come to Mount Zion, but Mount Zion, the purpose of Zion is to be this city, this environment where God has unhindered full liberty to glorify himself. Zion is the souls of the redeemed that bear the glory of the Lord. It's, it's the city in which he dwells. It's what all those pictures 
those natural pictures in Revelation are speaking, the book of Revelation are speaking of. Not a gigantic cube. Not literally. Come on. A people who are that city. The increase of his light. The clear crystal blocks. The living stones that bear that glory. A people who are the literal heavens coming out. I mean, the the reality of a heavenly relationship and a heavenly city being manifested in the earth. Not a huge cube flying down and landing, you know, in Australia. But an actual pit people. I mean, if, if you've read the, uh, the book of Revelation, you're familiar with some of that pictorial language. It speaks of Zion. It speaks of the city of God. Something that God has established in Christ that is manifested in the earth when the heavens are formed in your soul. I'll leave that alone. But if you recall from last time, I mentioned this verse in John chapter 16 that was really, really speaking to me at the time. It's still kind of lingering around in my heart. It's the verse where Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And I mentioned that this verse um, has everything to do with Christ filling us. It has everything to do with the measure of, of His fullness that you and I come to have operating in us. The Lord is able to fill your soul. The Lord is able to expand the boundaries of Israel to the degree that you and I are able to bear. And that word means to carry. To carry in ourselves what He says to us. And I can't tell you how important that is. God is not communicating with you for any other reason than for us to bear in ourselves to carry in our literal soul the reality of what He communicates. He's not communicating with you just to tell you what's true. It doesn't really matter that you know what things are true. He communicates with you that you would bear in yourself the truth. He communicates with you that the truth itself, the truth himself, would be the functioning life and nature and reality of your soul. And when I say the things that he says to you or he communicates to you, I'm not talking about words spoken. I'm talking about the word revealed in you. I'm talking about... I'm not talking about Jesus saying things and expecting us to do them. I'm talking about the Word which is Spirit and His life being revealed in us with the expectation that we bear that image in ourselves. And we will be conformed to the reality that He teaches us only in that way. Only as we come to bear that in ourselves. So God is seeking not to teach you the right facts about His Son but to make you into Israel His glory. He's not trying to teach you the right doctrines about Jesus. He's trying to turn you into the glorification of Jesus. The the city, the people in whom Christ is glorified. So this isn't lessons about Christ. This This is bearing in yourself the very person of Christ. He wants to expand the boundaries of Israel in you so that you can carry a greater measure of His fullness. And that kind of leads me 
back into these verses. I'm just going to read here in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to read verses 4 through 12, even though we talked about 4. It says, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And what we've been talking about is how he fills all things in us. But verse 11 says, And he gave some to be apostles, he gave some to be prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. All right. What is an apostle? What is a prophet or an evangelist or a pastor or teacher? Somebody answers, well, it's a, it's a guy or a gal who... See, stop right there. You're already getting off to the wrong, on the wrong foot. It's a bad start. Our, our problem in the church today is that we approach this verse without an understanding of what it means for Christ to fill all things. Our problem in the church is that we understand these words. I want to say it like this. Our understanding of these words is hopelessly man-centered at its foundation. We think it is primarily a person functioning with a specific gift, but it is primarily Christ functioning towards his specific end. And I'm not saying that people and giftings are not involved, it is, but it is precisely because we approach this verse with a man-centered worldview that we come up with the mess and the embarrassment that we see today in the church with respect to these so-called offices. I don't honestly know if there's anything that, I, that comes across my desk uh, that is more embarrassing. I feel like I have to blush when I read it than some of the nonsense going on about apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and pastors. And I'm not going to comment on all that. I just mainly want to point out that long ago in the Old Covenant if you took the sun out from the midst of Israel as its substance and definition and reality then you had what God considered an abomination that needed to be destroyed. And similarly if you take Christ out from the center of these functions of the New Covenant if Christ is not their life, their source, their purpose, and their substance, then you have something equally abominable and contrary to his purpose. These five words, which, which really, just as a side note, they really comprise uh, four ministries spoken of because the last two are, in the Greek, they're, it would be better translated pastor-teachers or pastors who are teachers. So there goes the five-fold ministry right there, but... It's the fourfold ministry. But in other words, uh, when he was making this list, the, the pastors and the teachers were kind of one, one, uh, one thing in his mind. These are not descriptions of natural human giftings that God desires to steer for his purposes. It's not what these are. I mean, just because you're naturally a good communicator and you enjoy reading and studying, it does not make you a teacher after you've come to Christ. Just because you love to travel and you enjoy motivational speaking, 
and projects, it doesn't, doesn't make you an apostle in the body of Christ. Just because you, you worked for five years for Dion Warwick in the psychic hotline doesn't make you a shoe-in for a prophet's role in the body of Christ. That's just not how it works. I mean, that is kind of how it works in the church a lot of times, but that's not really how it works. These are not natural abilities being used for God. These words correspond to various expressions of Christ that are for the edifying of his body. And I don't deny that natural giftings come into play, as Christ is the reality and source working in souls. But the reality of so-called offices, these, these offices correspond directly to the measure of Christ working in an, in an individual for the sake of the Lord's body. Not the measure of enthusiasm, not the measure of charisma, not the measure of giftedness. It's the measure of Christ functioning in a soul and towards the increase of the seed in the body. More specifically, the function of, of any of these ministries corresponds directly to the measure that they have been obedient to the death of Christ. And we don't think of it like that. We don't think of those ministries like that. But I, I bet you that God does. We think that God is sending out people to, you know, to be all that they can be. You know, we think that God is harnessing our giftings and sending us to Africa to win the heathen. I, I challenge that thought. I don't think that's how God views these ministries. I think when God sends somebody to minister to his body, he sends them out to die. I don't mean he sends them out to be killed with stones or rocks. I mean that if there is going to be any fruit in any particular area in the body of Christ, the Lord knows that he really needs to send into that area a dying seed. Because only when a seed falls to the ground and dies does it bear much fruit. When God sent Paul, for instance, out on his missionary journeys, he did not send him in the strength and the honor of what we now know as the apostolic mantle. He didn't send him out with pomp and pageantry and confidence and gifting. That's how we do it. You know, if you have a big enough church, we'll send you an apostle to do a weekend conference. And we'll send him first class. And we'll expect a back exit somewhere in your sanctuary that he can slide out to his car without having to deal with all the questions and needs afterwards. Well, we should be ashamed of that kind of stuff. When God sent a man or a woman, he sent them to go somewhere in the weakness and in total weakness and in fear of the Lord. He sent them to go and to bear in themselves the dying of the Lord Jesus so that the life of the Lord Jesus would work in what is called by God, true ministry. Listen to how Paul describes himself to the Corinthians. He says, Brethren, when I came to you, did I come with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God? For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my Preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why? Why did Paul 
come to them in weakness, trembling, wanting to know nothing but that death that, that results in that life. Well, because Paul had an expectation in his ministry. Paul's expectation was quite simply that if the cross was able to get him out of the way, there might actually be fruit that works in this people. He was concerned lest his words nullify the cross of Christ. And he knew that if he would bear in himself the decrease, the death of the Lord, then there might actually be an expanding of the boundaries of Israel in those to whom he ministered. And here's how he puts it, 2 Corinthians 4.11. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, verse 12, Death works in us, but life in you. That's his uh, paradigm. Paradigm for apostolic ministry. Death works in me, so that life can work in you. Well, I am conformed to his death, so that there is something of Christ that can be seen and shared and ministered. So if you're going somewhere whether it's to, to a huge conference or just across the street to, to your neighbor's house and you're expecting to minister something according to one of these offices, then you can be sure of one thing. You can be sure that you're going to get plastic fruit unless you go there as a dying seed. Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Well, that sounds exciting. What should we do about that, Jesus? Verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Notice how right after he mentions the dying seed part, bringing forth glory, Jesus shows them that he's not just talking about himself alone as this dying seed. I mean, obviously he's the life. He alone is the resurrection and the life. He is the life or they have no life. But unless we bear in ourselves that death and come to abide in him, we will bear nothing of his fruit unless we lose our life and follow him, there's not going to be any fruit at all. I don't know if you've uh, realized this or not. Maybe you have. But, but losing your life and following Jesus are one and the same thing. There's no genuine following of Jesus that doesn't involve being conformed to his death. You don't, you don't just follow Jesus around the earth. You follow Jesus out of the earth, really. You don't just follow him... You know, anywhere, you don't follow him anywhere other than his death, that you may attain to his resurrection. And look at what he says right here in John 12, 26. If you want to serve him, you have to follow where he was going. Well, where was he going? What was he about to do? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. That's, that is how and where you follow the Lord. And Jesus is not trying to get you to follow him around during your day. That's not what following the Lord's about. 
I mean, he's not really trying to get you to go to the post office and then the Sam's Club and then help an old lady across the street. That's not what following Jesus is all about. I'm, you can do that. That's fine. But that's really not what following Jesus means. Following Jesus is following him in the way. And the way is a term that is loaded with meaning from the Old Testament. The way is, is shown to you in the exodus from Egypt. And it starts with blood on a door. The way is shown to you in the tabernacle and in the temple. The way is shown to you in the, in the cross. And the way is that death, burial, and resurrection. And we're not really following Jesus, regardless of where we think he told us to go or what he told us to do, if we're not following him in death, burial, and resurrection. So anyway, these four or five offices, they have to do with serving the Lord. But in order to serve the Lord, you must follow him to where he is, so that where he is, you may be also. And it's there, having come by way of the cross, that the only thing left to offer a soul is the measure of Christ that is working in you, the measure of his fullness that is operating in you. These four titles, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, these have to do with ministry. But what is ministry? I wish I, wish we would, all, I, wish I would have asked the Lord that question, what is ministry, before I headed out after college to give my life to ministry. Ministry is not what we do what we say, or where we go for the Lord. Ministry is the measure of Christ working in what we do, what we say, or where we go. True ministry is entirely bound up with the measure of Christ that works in us. The measure of ministry is the measure of the Lamb. It's not the measure of attendance at a meeting. It's not the measure of salvations claimed at a service. It's not the measure of bodies healed. It's not the measure of bodies present. It's not the measure of excitement or the measure of books sold or money raised or faces with smiles. The measure of ministry is the measure of Christ. And frankly... The only one that can truly see that measure is the Father who is looking for His Son. And we hate that. That just makes us cringe. We hate not being able to measure. We first of all, hate that it's not us being measured. But worse than that is that there's no way to pull out a yardstick and measure how well we're doing. Oh, that just drives the Adamic man crazy. The Adamic man lives for a report card. We live to assess ourselves. And the reason we do that is because we live and breathe and work and serve almost exclusively for the praise of man, for the glory that comes from man. There's no point in denying that. That's how we work by nature. That is dealt with in the cross, but it is not dealt with apart from the cross. And that is what we bring to the Lord. So you might as well just face it. Jesus said that too. He said, how can you hear my word if you seek the glory of man? He said, you are those who seek to be glorified by man, but the things that are highly esteemed in the eyes of man are detestable 
in the eyes of the Lord. Well, we live for what we are seen to be by people. Reputation, approval, acceptance, appreciation, success. These are the words that make the world go round. These are the words that get us out of bed in the morning and the words that we labor for all day long. Reputation, approval, acceptance, appreciation, success. And these are the words that we have brought into the, into the body of Christ and associated quite often with the titles Apostle, Prophet, Pastor, Teacher, Evangelist. And that's not true across the board. There are people who, who operate in these ministries according to the measure of Christ. I know that that's true. But so much of what we see today in the church is the same title envy and ladder climbing and self-promotion that we see in the unbelieving business world. I want to tell you that before man ever used these offices to glorify ourselves, they were given of God to glorify himself. They were quite simply the various ways that Christ, the measure of Christ, worked in and through people for the glorifying of himself, for the building up of his body, so that Christ would be all and in all. They worked in and for the body of Christ, that Christ might fill all things. And they didn't work, as many of these offices do today, for the raising up of, of, of bigger and better prophets and apostles. They didn't form schools of the prophets and, and apostolic training centers. God established f the, the function of these offices by the measure of Christ. And each one worked towards the edifying of the body. The building up of the body of Christ is the same thing as Christ filling the soul with himself. It's the same thing as we've been talking about, as bearing in ourselves a greater operation of the Lord by faith. You want to see an apostle, he'll be the one bearing in himself the dying of the Lord Jesus so that life, that the life of Christ is glorified in a people. If you want to see a, a prophet, he'll be the one being conformed to the death of Christ so that he can speak out from the mind of the Lord. And just for the sake of clear definitions here, the word apostle just means sent one. It's actually the, uh, the uh, noun form of the Greek word meaning to send, to send a person. And I know about all the debates in the church about how to define an apostle and who gets to be called by that name and who doesn't. And, and the only reason, in my opinion, that we argue over things like that is because we're concerned with who should get the honor of wearing that title. But see, that proves that we don't even know what ministry is. There is no honor for a man wearing that title or any of those titles. The honor isn't for man in those titles. On the contrary, there is outward contempt and inward death for the person wearing that title. We've got it all screwed up. We've got it all wrong. With a real apostle, there is only honor honor in and for Christ who is being glorified in his body. That is the only honor that Paul ever cared about. 
with a real apostle, the only honor is for Christ who is being formed in his body. And that's the reward. Christ formed in a people. That's the reward that Paul was wanting to partake of and not be disqualified from. The reward of, of a people in whom the Son is glorified. So an apostle is a sent one. It is, it is one in whom the Lord works to establish churches that fellowship in the truth. And we could go down and try to, you know, distinguish these things in more detail. And honestly, I don't, I don't know that I want to do that or even can do that. Because if Christ is being formed in his people, then these ministries arise out from Christ. And there's no point in really, uh, uh, what's the phrase, nitpicking or whatever, the, the specific roles and functions. Because they also just, they overlap one with another anyway. But just for the sake of thoroughness, I understand a prophet to be one through whom the Lord communicates his view, his mind. One who speaks out from the mind of the Lord by faith. Sometimes that has to do with things or events in the earth. More often, and more importantly, it has to do with spiritual reality as it is in the heavens, as it is in Christ. There's examples of, uh, of Agabus in the book of Acts who uh, spoke with regards to a famine. Uh, but I believe more often than not, the, the, the office of the prophet is really speaking the mind of the Lord with regards to eternal things. Uh, I understand an evangelist to be one in whom the Lord gathers together those who have a heart to know him. One who proclaims the truth as it is in Christ and feeds milk to babes and brings them into a fellowship where they grow up into the truth. And I understand the pastor teacher as the one who tends to that flock and feeds that flock from infancy towards maturity in the Lord, bringing them, as Paul says, from milk to solid food that they might grow up in all things into the head, which is Christ. That they might be uh, a people full-grown in him, full-grown in the truth, and walking in the full light of that day, that, that day that he is. And, and like I said, all of these offices overlap and, 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 and they blend together. They're, they're distinguishable by function, but it's not like you can only be one or the other, or, or people are you know, they, chosen by God to never bleed over into different functions. Paul, I believe, Paul uh, had the Lord working in him mightily in, in each of those ways. He certainly was, uh, as far as I can tell, all four of them in, in a great degree. But never do I think that he cared to be referred to by the, any of those titles, at least not as a matter of respect or honor. Certainly not. I know that once or twice he insisted upon being a, an apostle in his letters, but that was, that was only because he wanted the churches to hear and re receive the truth that he was carrying, not because he wanted the, 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 the glory due his sufferings or something like that. It wasn't a position he was fighting for. It was the truth that he was fighting for, that they would receive it, that he was proclaiming and wanted them to receive. He wanted them to realize that all the other 
gospels that they were hearing were anathema or cursed. People were spreading a curse. And so he, he argued with them that he was one to whom they should listen. But none of these offices are, uh, are something that Paul wanted to be known as carrying the mantle or all, all the ways that we talk about it today. So anyway, just as, as a summary statement, God's purpose is to fill all things with himself, that we would be the people in whom the boundaries of Israel are expanded unto the glory of God. What does he do about that? Well, he functions in his body in ministry, in service. He fills up his people and that filling works out in that people towards the building up of the body of Christ. And for that people, he has ordained the operation of Christ in the souls of men to to evangelize and to prophesy and to be sent on apostolic missions and to teach and pastor people all for one purpose, all for the expanding of the boundaries of Israel, all for the increase that we would be a people in whom God is glorified, that we would be Israel, a people in whom the Son is glorified. And those four uh, offices function by the life of Christ unto the life of Christ. From Him, to Him, and for Him are all things. Amen. We'll stop with that.